0: Good morning. You guys doing well? I thought we were going to have to cancel services this weekend. The espresso machine was down. It's pretty serious stuff here. But I got my coffee ole. Ole. Yeah. So it's not bad. It'll have to do. It's going to be hard. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze. Hey, Vintage Jesus is our teaching series. We're wrapping it up. This is the grand finale of this teaching series, heading into a new teaching series here in a couple weekends. Uh, The Jesus Most People Miss has been the subtitle. The question we're uh, answering this weekend, what will happen when he returns? No one is more loved or hated than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the prejudices, the biases, and encounter the historical, biblical, vintage Jesus are never Ever the same, no doubt about it. And so as we talk about his, his second coming, the Lord's promised return is the Christian's blessed hope. Titus 2.13 makes that clear. Yet the time, the time of his return and the manner in which he will come are highly debated issues. I'm sure you would agree with that. There's, there's multiple views on that. And certainly we can debate them, shouldn't divide over them, but we're going to focus in on kind of the primary things that happen when he comes back. Studies of the events of his return are called studies of the last things, or the word, it's a big word, it's called eschatology. Say that word with me, eschatology. Turn to the person next to you and say eschatology. Eschatology. There you go, so now you know a new word, it means uh, end times, it's the study of those last things. Now you need to know this, that you have a personal eschatology, your life is going to come to an end eventually, that's where we're all headed. So we've got another year, we can mark off the calendar as we head into 2015. But there's also a historical eschatology, and you need to be somewhat sober-minded about both of those. And uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning really uh, discussing pre or postmillennialism or all-millennialism or any details as it relates to to that, you know, as it relates to the time and people like to set dates and do all that or even the manner. We're going to focus on the primary things that you need to be aware of because what I want to do is focus primarily on the second part of this study. So we're going to talk about what will happen when he returns, but primarily we want to look at how should we live in light of his second coming because that's even more important. And uh, how should we live in light of Christ's return? How to live an unwasted life? How can I live... Uh, A life that counts, not just for time, but for eternity. Sounds appropriate as we wrap up a year and head into a brand new year. I want to start off by sharing with you a video clip. This is from the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan. And if you have never seen the movie before, it's a very moving clip that I'm going to share you. It's actually the end of the movie. If you've never seen it, I'm going to run the movie for you. So... Uh, but, but this is uh, World War II, Mrs. Ryan has four sons on the battlefield, three are killed in action, and she will receive their death certificate all, all in the same day, which would be uh, a crisis, it would be overwhelming for any mom. And to spare her any further grief, they send a platoon out to save Private Ryan. Therefore, that's the name of of the movie, to bring him back home safe and sound. These guys that go out to save him basically give their lives. And at the end of the movie, you can see what deep gratitude that he has and how important it has been for him to live his life in such a way uh, that it honors those who gave their life for him. Watch this clip. very moving clip, um, and I, I wanted to start with that because I want us to be motivated here with this study in mind. So there should be a couple things that happen to us as we uh, head into the study. First of all, we should live every day with deep gratitude for those that have bled and died for us on the battlefield to give us the freedoms that we experience here. And not just in the, on the battlefield, but day-to-day to protect our safety, our police officers. So both our military and our police officers. Yeah, let's... I think we should give them a hand, and that's that's pretty important. So there should be that gratitude, but you need to know that uh, that's a a gift from God, and it's a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice that we celebrate, uh, and that's the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus, to give us eternal freedom eternal freedom. So it's pretty amazing. And so, so it's natural and normal to, to want your life to equal the calling that you have received as a Christian. In fact, I wrote this down. Philippians 2.27 says that. So, he, I mean, Private Ryan didn't have to earn that. It was given to him. So what he's actually saying is living a life equal to the sacrifice that was done for him and the freedoms that he was able to experience. And, and that should be true about our lives, just in general as Americans, but even more so as Christians for what Christ has done for us. And so that's the motivation behind uh, this, this study. So uh, let's, begin, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our text, and then unpack these notes. Let's pray first. God, uh, Father God, uh, we are here the last weekend of the year, having just celebrated your Son, our Savior's first coming to this earth Christmas And we thank you that he came to rescue us from peril, bearing our judgment. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died to set us free from sin, Satan, and death. And now as we study your word and reflect on his second coming, give us an indescribable passion for him and an indestructible joy from knowing him and a deep sense of urgency and compassion for those who don't know him as we learn to live unwasted lives for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text, wonderful text, Acts. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. you got the story of Jesus, Uh, four different perspectives. And now we head into uh, after Jesus is resurrected. He spent 40 days with his disciples, and he's about ready to to ascend into heaven. We pick up the story in verse 6, chapter 1 of Acts. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're asking an eschatology question. How is all this going to come down? How is this all going to end up? And I want you to take special note of what he tells them to focus on and what not to focus on. We tend to be preoccupied with really uh, the time and the manner in which he's going to come back. But there's actually something that he wants us to be focused on more than any of that. And he says here, for he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. So, so this is what he wants them to focus on. Don't set dates and don't be over-occupied with, you know, preoccupied with all of those studies. But this is what I want you to be focused on. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So he wants us to be witnesses. Literally the word is martyr. The Greek word is Martyr. So be so filled up with my Holy Spirit, be so hot and passionate about who I am and what I've done for you, that you would be willing to proclaim and declare and demonstrate that through your life, even to your very death. And then he even tells us how to do that in Jerusalem, that's where they lived, Judea. So you got your city, your state, and then cross-cultural Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So you got these concentric circles. That's how we try to reach out here from desert breeze. Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's begin. I don't want to spend too much time on the front end, but you still need to have kind of the basics of this uh, doctrine of eschatology as it relates to Jesus' second coming. What will happen when he returns? Number one, his return will be sudden, personal, and visible, visible and glorious. So his return will be sudden, personal, visible, and glorious. I gave you some verses there. You can study more on your own. Number two, he will judge everyone who has ever lived. He will judge everyone who has ever lived. Do you like me from time to time when you look around, you know, here in America and also beyond America, you get a little bit troubled over the injustices that you see and you think, wow, that person just got away with murder or this person is getting away with that and this guy's wicked and that guy's, or whatever. Do you ever struggle like that, show of hands? Yeah. And you kind of wonder, wow, somebody needs to do something. Let me me just (laughs) shoot straight with you. Based on my understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ, listen to me, nobody gets away with anything, flat out. He's coming back to judge the world. He's going to come back to to balance the book, settle the score, make things right, and we're going to go, and the Bible even says, we will go, wow, that's amazing, you are righteous and holy and just in all you do. And so... And in fact, what will happen is that helps you with your forgiveness of others, uh, perpetrators in your life, because you know when you understand his judgment, you actually pity them. You actually feel bad for them, because you know what they face apart from, from God. And so that, that helps. And so what you have to know also is that, so, so his first coming, with his first coming, Jesus came, and this, born, uh, this baby born in Bethlehem was born to die for you and I, and he came to bear our judgment. Because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So we were facing an eternity apart from God because of our sinfulness. The Bible very clear about that. We're all in the same camp. And yet God loved us so much, he sent his son, John 3.16, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So he came to bear judgment. But if you reject Christ, and he gives you plenty of time, to commit your life to him, to come to him so that he has indeed bore your judgment. If you don't do that, then he will bring judgment upon you. Now, everybody here in this church and beyond the walls of this church are in one of two categories. You're either, you've either put your faith in Jesus and he has taken on the judgment that was meant for you, or you're going to face his judgment eventually. It's just a matter of time. And... Uh, and, and, and this is what will happen. Uh, number three, he will punish non-Christians in hell according to their wickedness. In fact, Jesus spoke of hell more than any, anyone in Scripture. Now, you may think, hell for all eternity? That seems a little extreme. Well, let me, let me help you with that a bit. Because I, I struggle with that and have struggled with it in the past. But the more I understand God's holiness and my sinfulness, I don't struggle so much but uh, when you lessen the penalty for a wrong, you make the wrong less serious and you make the person wronged less serious or less important. So, I mean, let's say you relocate to a kind of third world country, and in that third world country, you have a family member that's murdered, and you go before the court of law, and that court of law tells the murderer who was caught, well, uh, you're off the hook if you pay $100. I mean, how would you feel about that? You'd be outraged because that really devalues human life and it devalues the human life of your own family member. You'd be outraged over that. See, the greater the penalty, the greater the seriousness of the person wronged. Anything less than eternal punishment lessens sin and lessens the, the God who has been sinned against. And, and, and the more you understand God's holiness, we tend to think too highly of ourselves in America. That's the reason why we're so offended by this eternal, eternal suffering and all of this. And we think we're basically really good people. We're, we're really full of ourselves here. We have a lot of pride here in America, and that's why we struggle with this whole eternal punishment thing, and holy God, and how dare God do that to me, and we shake our fist at God, and it's just, it's crazy that we have such an arrogant, prideful attitude, and and so it makes sense to me, the more I understand His holiness and my sinfulness, it makes perfect sense to me that a sin against an infinite, holy being deserves infinite consequences, and that's what you get if if you... reject his son who came to bear your judgment, one of these days he's coming to bring judgment and he'll come upon you. That's a fact. That's, that's what the Bible says. It's very clear. So just as, as sure as his first coming, which is historical, evidential, factual, he's coming again. And, uh, and the, the Bible refers to it as, for believers, the blessed hope. That we have. And, and not only that, this eternal judgment. I mean, what did Jesus really take upon the cross for us? That's why the cross is so horrifying to us. The cross is a horrifying means of execution, and it's because it's showing us the ugliness of our sin and the holiness of God, but at the same time, it's also revealing His amazing love for us that He would rescue us, that He would love us that much to, to redeem us and rescue us. And so here's number four. So number three, he will punish non-Christians in hell according to their wickedness. And number four, he will reward Christians in heaven according to their righteousness. So thus the day of judgment can be portrayed as one in which believers are rewarded and unbelievers are punished. So it's our beliefs, your belief system right now, what you believe determines your eternal destination and your behavior determines uh, our eternal compensation. So so, if you re- reject Christ, based on your level of wickedness, that will your judgment will be meted out to you from from God, and based on how you, if you put your faith in Jesus, and then how you lived your life, um, your rewards will be meted out to you based on how how you did that, how you lived your life there, and. Um, now, here's what's so fascinating about the Christian life, and it, just, it sets itself apart from all other major beliefs. Romans 3.23, it says, uh, for the wages of sin is death, and you guys know what death is. When someone dies physically, their soul is separated from their body. But spiritual death is that we are separated from God, and so that's what we face. We face an eternal separation from God. So the wages of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there, but the gift the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And listen to me, it's a gift. You can't earn it, you can't achieve it. If you acknowledge your sin that separates you from God and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and turn your life over to him, it's yours. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. It's just, and so that, this is what is so fascinating. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is his eternal life, a life that, that most people only dream about. Jesus came to give us fullness of life, John 10.10. 10. Yes, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. And I love the life that he gives to us. And then number five, we will eternally celebrate in glorified bodies with God in a new heavens in a new earth. He's gonna come back and he's gonna reverse the curse and its effects that we see happen as a result of Genesis 3. And so, if you reject God's offer of love through Jesus Christ, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever come. If you receive God's offer of love through Jesus Christ, this life is as close to hell as you will ever come. So I'm, I'm, I'm choosing him, okay? just It's a no-brainer for me. I'm like, and I'm going to try to get as many of my family and friends, as many people as I can to go with me. And it just, it just makes sense, that's, a, that's really a wise choice, when you really understand God's holiness, our sinfulness, Christ came in and died for us, it's a wonderful thing, and so, so how should we live in light of this? Um, my mom pounded this into our, our brains in uh, growing up, and I'll never, never forget this, but she would say this all the time, life on earth will soon be passed Only those things for Christ will last. And so what was she she saying? Make your lives count. Live for eternity. Do those things that really matter. Matthew uh, chapter 24, Jesus gets into some eschatology, and he talks a little bit about about the end times. And in there, he says something that's really fascinating. In verses 12 and 13 of uh, Matthew 24, he says... uh, that one of the, some of the things that are going to happen is that the, the love of many will grow cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. So he puts people in two different categories. He's saying, there's going to be a group of people that their hearts grow cold towards God, and there's going to be a group of people whose hearts get hotter and hotter for God. And so it makes sense to me, based on that, and also based on Romans 12, 11. it says, never be lacking in zeal, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words, make sure you're hot, your heart is hot for God. So as I'm thinking about making my life count, and living for eternal things, it would seem as though that uh, to, to really make sure that my, ho- my heart is hot for God would be one of those things. Um, Westminster Catechism, in fact, our men's group, they use it as a, as a resource in, I think it's on Thursday mornings here is what they were telling me between services. And if you're familiar with it, it's a great study. We'll probably maybe do a study of that at some time, maybe in another group, but, but in that, the very first question of this Westminster Catechism, it says, what is the chief end of man? So if I were to ask you that question, if you were to ask the people around you, how would they answer that question? What is the chief end of man? In other words, why are you here? Not here, at desert breeze, but why are you on this planet Earth? Why do you draw air under your lungs? Why do you exist? It seems to me that if you're gonna make your life count, it would seem that you would wanna get back to why we're here. Now let me ask you this question, you can yell out the answer to me. Uh, I'll give you two choices. Are we here by divine design, or are we here by random chance and unlimited time? Divine design. Now, there are those that would believe that we're here by random chance and unlimited time, so, so we exist, therefore, uh, it's, kinda, it's called ex- existentialism. We exist, therefore, we need to find out the essence of our existence, and everybody can kind of determine that on our own. I, I disagree with that. I believe that we don't determine you know, the reason for our existence, the essence of our existence. I think that we, we need to go to our divine designer. I mean, he, he designed us, and so he's got a reason for us being here. So it just makes sense to me. Let's go back to him and find out why are we here. And so if you were to turn to the person next to you, I'll have you do that just in a moment, but what would they say? What would you say to them? Why are we here? Because that would be also part of making your life count, living out your original purpose and and what that looks like okay do that ask the person next to you what is why am I here Why, why do we exist here on planet earth real quick Okay, and what were you guys, you guys thinking, maybe along the lines of, if, how were you to answer the question, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to anybody thinking to glorify God by enjoying him forever? Yeah, that's Westminster Catechism, the very first question. So John Piper took that and said, yeah, he liked that. He built his whole ministry on that first one and said, I actually prefer uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Not and, but by, by enjoying him forever. And so thus he coined the phrase, which we use here regularly, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so, uh, so why are we here? To glorify God. What's the best way to do that? By finding our deepest satisfaction in him. <laughs> I love it. That's the Christian life. <laughs> what? Yes. His glory, my satisfaction, are one in the same pursuit. Woohoo! I love it. So when your feet hit the floor in the morning, the most important thing you can do each and every day is find your deepest satisfaction in Him, walk with Him, enjoy Him, love Him, have a relationship with Him. That's it. Yeah. And then you live your life through the good, the bad, the ugly. People look at your life and go, wow, how do you do that? And you can point to, because you've got this indescribable, indestructible joy, and you can say, it's the good news the good news to the degree you understand the good news. We talked about this last couple weeks. That's what we celebrated. Good news of great joy, Luke 2.10. Uh, so it's the good news, what he did. He came to rescue me from peril. I have fullness of life in him. And it cannot be lost. It cannot be taken from me. That's, uh, that's Luke 16. Jesus said that. And no one can take this from you, this joy that I'm giving you. And so I'm finding this deep joy in him not from him, but in him, walking with him, knowing he's always there with me, and therefore, no matter what's going down in my life, I've got this indescribable, indestructible joy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Peter's talking to second-generation Christians, and he says, um, he says to them, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him, now you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You can't even put words to it. And, and so that's, that's the essence of the Christian life. So the chief end of man is for us to give glory to God, and we do that by finding our deepest delight in Him. And so we are to live our lives in such a way that people will infer from, from our lives that Christ is more beautiful, more desirable, more satisfying than all that life can give or death could ever take away. So that we would spend our money, we would uh, live in our homes, we would have marriages, have kids, live our singleness... Uh, pursue our careers in such a way that Christ would be more desirable, more satisfying than anything that life could ever give or death could even take away. In fact, even when we're on our deathbed, you would be going, I can't wait. If this is my time, I can't wait to come face to face with my my king and my savior who gave his life for me. That's how we do it. Now, here's 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health to see if, if that's where you are. And this is a good way to kind of wrap up the year as we head into the new year. So to set us... Set us on a a good trajectory here. Here's some questions. This is from Donald Whitney on this idea of having uh, hearts hot for God. Here's number one. Do you thirst for God? Do you thirst for God? Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You see the passion of his life? See, his passion is is more for God than it is for whether the Cardinals win or lose. Okay, of course, they didn't have Cardinals back in those days, but for me, I mean, I I love to see my team win, and I don't like to see them lose, but not near as much as I love God and love his, you know, his presence in my life and having this relationship with him. So there's this thirst. In fact, this is what you need to know. Faith is more, belief in God is more than an agreement with facts, in your head, it's an appetite for God in your heart that exceeds all other appetites. It's okay to have appetites for various things, but the greatest appetite should be your appetite for God. And then if that's, that's going to be cultivated in your life through number two, are you governed increasingly by God's word? So this is the primary way that God speaks to us. It's through his word. And so and this is what's going to stir up your appetite for God. Joshua 1.8, this is Joshua. He's leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. Promised land. Old Testament is our New Testament fullness of life. So interesting metaphor, parallel there. But Joshua 1.8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. So that by it, you will be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. He's saying, hey, you want success? You want prosperity? Connect with God regularly. Stir up that appetite for him through the study of his word. Let him speak to you. Um, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 talks about God's word being a delight. And then I don't have this on your notes. You can write it down. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3, we studied this a few months ago as we were working our way through 1 Peter. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So once you've tasted of the goodness of God, oh my goodness, you're gonna have a ferocious appetite for his word. You're gonna wanna gather regularly right here on weekend services and with, in a small group and study it and even personally Meditating, reflecting on God's word. If you're doing that, number three, are you more loving? Are you more loving? John 13, 34 through 35. This is Jesus. The context is Jesus just washed the disciples' feet. That's that's pretty phenomenal in itself. And notice what he says: A new command I give you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. How are we to love one another? As I have loved you. So how how has he loved us? Sacrificially. It's overwhelming. Now, if I'm having a hard time loving people in my life, it's because I'm not living in the reality of his love. I'm not rooted and established in in his love. I I don't know and I'm not living in the reality of the the depth, the height, the width, the length of his love as described in Ephesians chapter 3. That was the prayer of Paul to the church in Ephesus so I'm not I'm not in touch with that because he even says in the Sermon on the Mount that my love will so overwhelm you that you'll even be able to love your enemies. So let me ask you Are you becoming more loving? So I probably have to ask those that are closest to you. You'd have to ask my wife. And I would hope that through the years that you'd be able to ask her. In fact, you probably should never listen to the thing that I say and never even follow me whatsoever if I haven't been growing in love through the years. And if these things that I'm describing here aren't increasing in, in, in power and in relevance to me. And, and particularly my, my love for my wife, my love for others. And so he goes on, he says, so a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? By our love for one another. And of course, if you want a description of that love, you can look to First Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy. So that would be kind of a good punch list to kind of look through. It. Am I more patient? Am I more kind? What's going on in my life? Now, I just uh, went to the movie, how many go, typically go to, th- uh, go to the movies during the holidays, Christmas holidays, gone to any movies, anybody? Okay, not very many. How many watch movies on TV? Is this time to watch a lot of movies? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We went to the Hobbit movie, the, th- the third in the trilogy, and in the Hobbit movie, there was a statement that was made uh, there towards the end that it must be true love because it hurts so bad, you know? Anybody remember that in the movie or anybody that's seen the movie? And so it's kind of, it's a, it's kind of actually a dumb statement because uh, Sorry, but it, it, it really is because uh, lust hurts real bad, too. Because you, it, it might not be true love. It could just be pseudo love. It could be lust. Lust is about about getting. And it hurts really bad when you have those uh, pseudo saviors pried from your fingers, okay? It, it really does. But love, love is more about giving. Lust is more about getting. Love is more about giving. Are you more giving? Are you more of a giving person? Are you less... Uh, Self-absorbed, more conscious of the needs around you, because that's what happens when people's lives are ravished with the love of Jesus. Because you have your treasure, and you want others to have that treasure too. That's why you become more, more conscientious of the needs around you, because you're filled up with who He is, and so... Uh, That's what begins to be, are you more loving? Number four, are you more sensitive to God's presence? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? This is what I love about the Christian life. This is my favorite. This is my absolutely favorite thing about the Christian life, is his presence. So that when I put my faith in Jesus, he comes to live within me, never to leave me or forsake me, and nothing can ever separate me from his love. Boom, done deal, over. (laughs) Ha ha. And I'm a... I'm a major screw-up. You know, I do some really stupid stuff, and yet he told me he never abandoned me. He never left me. He's still there with me. That's pretty fascinating. Now, I don't always live in, in you know, with a sense of, of his presence on my heart. Certainly, his omnipresence is clear to my mind, but it's not, you know, uh, not real to my heart. And so oftentimes, we find ourselves a whole lot like Jacob in Genesis twenty-eight sixteen. 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought... Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How many of have ever had that experience before where you're just kind of going about your life and then all of a sudden you realize, wow, that was God. You're just overwhelmed. You just go, wow, that was God. And so my heart for you, my heart for me is that we would live not just with his omnipresence being clear to our mind, but being real to our heart that there's this manifestation of his presence in our lives. And... Uh, I wrote this down, I was thinking about this, that we'll, to, to get there is that we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And we're, gonna, we're gonna talk more about that as we head into the year and how we can do that. Hebrews 13:5 through six puts it this way. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money. In other words, don't look for those pseudo saviors thinking somehow that they're gonna satisfy you. But be content with what you have, because God has said never, and literally what he means here, the Greek is never, ever, ever, ever will I leave you, never, ever, ever will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? So the more you live in the reality of his presence in your life, when you begin to understand who it is that walks through your day with you, you can face anything. You can face anything. So how are you doing? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Matthew 10, 42, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. I also gave you Luke 10, 25 through 37, cross-reference, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So at Desert Breeze, we are concerned about all suffering. We have a lot of outreach efforts here. We do really a great job here. Out of all the churches I've been a part of, this, is, this church really does a phenomenal job in, in reaching out into the community. And we give, we help, and we do that, no strings attached, in the name of Jesus. Because, because we are, at Desert Breeze, are concerned about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And so we want them to know what a friend they have in us so that we can tell them what a friend they can have in Jesus. I mean, God forbid that we just touch their lives Physically and, and in a temporary way and we fail to tell them about Jesus and they die and they go to hell for all eternity that's crazy so there's got to be that balance yeah we touch people's lives physically emotionally and, but more even importantly also spiritually and that's part of it so do you have that sense of concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others number six do you delight in the, in the bride of Christ what do I mean by the bride of Christ yell it out to me the church, yeah, absolutely. First Corinthians three sixteen through seventeen. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? So he's not only talking uh, personally, but also corporately. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now. How many have friends, I do this survey from time to time, how many have friends who are Christians, who claim to be Christians, and yet uh, they're not connected, or friends or family members, uh, they claim to be Christians, but they're not connected to a local church family? Show of hands, show of hands, yeah, a lot of people. In fact, they would even say, "Man, I can be a Christian and not be connected to a local church family. And I would say, well, yeah, maybe, but not a very healthy one. Because when you really study scripture, you see the importance of local church families. In fact, when that word is used, church, ecclesia. It's used 115 times in the New Testament. 92 times it's used for a local church family like Desert Breeze. Now, if you tell me that you're walking with Jesus and you would say, hey, I really love Jesus, but I can't stand the church, that would be a little bit like you coming to me and saying, hey, you know what, Pastor Ray, I really like you, but I really can't stand your wife, Nancy. You know how I would respond? I would say, yeah, you know, I can kind of relate to that a little bit, but... uh No, I wouldn't say that. I would say this. I would say, you know what? That kind of ticks me off a little bit. That makes me angry because her and I are one. And what you say about her, you're saying about me. And you have no idea how much I love her. Otherwise, you wouldn't have said that. I would be willing to lay my life down for her. And our Savior laid his life down for us. And he is madly in love with his church made up of local church families like Desert Breeze throughout this community. And so when you have this attitude towards this church, it's really an attitude towards Jesus. And so I would question, are you really walking with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because if you know Jesus, yeah, the church is a mess. Of course it is. Because we need Jesus. So let's just admit the fact that we're a mess and let's work together to get to know him better so that we can help others to know him better. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, that's what it is. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And don't be... Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. That's what, why Desert Breeze exists. I've been a part of different churches that, I, that, was, that were a mess, and this church is a mess because you're here. <laughs> and I'm here. And we need help. I need help. And so do you delight in the bride of Christ? Oh, my goodness, I love the bride. I love the church. I love the family of God. I love this group of people here on I-17. Desert Breeze, oh my goodness, God is doing some amazing stuff here. Here's the next thing, are, are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? 1 Timothy 4, seven through eight. Having nothing to do, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives tells, rather train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, hey it's good, it's good you want to focus on your body, take good care of your body, that's a good thing, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, let me kind of tell you a little bit of where we're headed, because this kind of goes along with spiritual disciplines, and you're going to want to hang out with us as we head into the new year. Here this next weekend, this, last week, uh, this next weekend is the first weekend of the year, so join us because we're going to talk about four resolutions to an amazing 2015. I'm going to talk about really our mindset as we head into 2015. After that, we're going to do a campaign. As you well know, we've, this has been the biggest uh, year in the history of Desert Breeze, and we're going to do a campaign. We need to blow out some walls here in about another year and see if we can expand our building and fully use the capacity of our building here, and so we're going to do Uh, Dare You To Move To campaign. We're gonna talk about full devotion to Christ, how we walk all of this out, how to keep our hearts hot for God by being a genuine, growing, giving, going Christian all to God's glory. And then after that, we're gonna uh, do a teaching series from Tim Keller's book, really the basis of it uh, is Tim Keller's book on prayer, experiencing awe and intimacy with God. How do we connect so we can live more and more in the reality of his presence and really experience more of his love in our hearts? So we're gonna spend some time doing that. We probably won't go completely through the book, We'll go about halfway through it and then take a break and do another study and then come back to it. So that's kind of where we're headed. I'm excited about that. That's all part of spiritual disciplines. Uh, spiritual disciplines, you guys know what spiritual disciplines are. I didn't even ask you that, but they're, they have to do with prayer and Bible study and getting involved in small groups and, and doing all that. That's important. Spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to experience more of God. If you're doing spiritual disciplines and they're not increasing your capacity to experience more of His love and His presence, you're not doing spiritual disciplines right. There's something wrong. So when you come to church, it should be in a desire to connect with God and increase your capacity to experience more of Him. Are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? Number eight, do you still grieve over sin? 2 Corinthians 7, 10-11 makes this distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Uh, Worldly sorrow is that you're sorry that you got caught and you're sorry for the pain that the sin has caused you. Godly sorrow is that you're sorry for the pain that your sin has caused others, but particularly God, because you realize that in your sin you have trampled on God's love and wisdom. And so there's almost this this sensitivity that you're developing over sin. It's kind of like a... Like a fire alarm. Obviously, you don't want your fire alarm in your house to be overly sensitive because when you're cooking, it goes off all the time. That's crazy. But then again, you know, uh, if your house is burning down and the fire alarm doesn't go off, there's a major problem. Would you guys agree with that? My wife always likes, likes to light candles around the house and I always get onto her because she forgets to blow them out. I swear up and down, she's trying to kill me. And uh, she says, how come you left all these candles all around our bed and then you sleep in the other room? And she's got the insurance guy on the phone. <laughs> What's up with that? And, uh, and so, I mean, so you've got to have a fire alarm so when the, when the house is burning down, our houses can be burning down. And it's, it's the making of a psychopath if you don't have any sensitivity to a sense of right and wrong. And over time, you keep doing wrong things. And no big deal. You can leave a wake of destruction behind you. No big deal. That's the making of a psychopath. There should be a sensitivity about your life when you get off track, calibrated based on God's word. You look to God's word and say, okay, yeah, I screwed up royally. And there's that sensitivity, and you're, you're sorry for the pain it has caused God. I've trampled on God's love and wisdom. I'm gonna run back into his arms. He's waiting for me. He loves me. And so there should be that. In other words, what's happening in your life is that as you study God's Word, you spend time with Him, Jeremiah 2.13, is that you begin to recognize more and more that sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns. That living a life outside of God's Word is suicidal. And in fact, as it says in Matthew 5 29 through 30, your attitude towards that sin is that you would be willing to. Uh, it says that if your right hand causes you to sin, what are we supposed to do? Cut it off. Cut it off. If our right eye causes us to sin, what are we supposed to do? Gouge it out. Oh my goodness, that almost sounds like what? I mean, obviously, we're not to do that literally. Otherwise, I'd be up here with no arms and eyes. Okay? He's not doing it literally, but he's saying, take such drastic measures in your life. Don't you realize that sin? And when you're living your life outside of what God has for you, that's suicidal. So you develop a sensitivity to that. And when you look at King David's second Samuel chapter 11, the seeds of adultery and murder were planted when he should have been at war. That's when he was looking and he saw Bathsheba, the babe, bathing. And that started when he, should have been, when he should have been at war. He had apathy and passivity. And that's why when you see in his repentance, when he turns back in Psalm 51, 12, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy. He lost the joy, therefore he sinned. That's why we need to have hearts that are hot for God. That's the best thing you could think about as you head into 2015. Is my heart hot for God? What can I do to stir that heart for God up? within my life. That's why we're looking at this. This is why this is so critical. So do you still grieve over sin? Number nine, yes. Are you a quicker forgiver? Are you a quicker forgiver? And so uh, Matthew 18, 21 through 35 is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Basically what it's saying is that my ability to forgive others, and I'm not in any way minimizing any hurt that you've ever had, but I'm telling you that to the degree that you understand how much he's forgiven you, is to the degree you're able to forgive others. If you're not able to forgive others, it's because you're not living in the forgiveness that he has for you. Because what he has forgiven you is much, much, much more than what you'll ever, ever, ever have to forgive others. And so I understand, it's hard to forgive. I know it's difficult. It does take time. There is a process in all of that, but in that process, you've gotta come to terms with how much he's forgiven you and let his forgiveness ravish your heart and how much he loves you, and then you're gonna be able to offer that forgiveness Uh, that forgiveness to others. And so are you becoming a quicker forgiver? And uh, Hebrews 12, 15 talks about a bitter root. And then, of course, number 10, do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 2, Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So there's this longing in First Philippians 1 21 through 23. He says, This is better by far. When I was a kid, grew up in the church, they talked a lot about eschatology, end times. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And uh, they'd get us all worked up. And there was a movie called Left Behind. Anybody remember that old movie? Trying to scare us to death. And I'm thinking, Man, I'm only 12, I'm 13. Man, I don't want him to come back yet. I want to get my driver's license first. Isn't that crazy? You know, the thinking of that, and then after I got my driver's license, I said, no, I want to get married first, and then after we got married, I said, no, I want to I have kids first, and now that I've got my driver's license, got married, and had kids, it's time for you to come back, Jesus, <laughs> you know, because I didn't realize what that meant. If you had any idea what it means to be with him for all eternity, you would not wish anything more than that there's going to be a, a yearning in your heart to want to be with him for all eternity. That's healthy, normal Christianity. Now let me, let me end with this story. It's uh, the parable of the rich fool. And then we'll pray Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, this is Jesus, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, and this is really profound, these words that I've I've memorized years ago and meditated on, they're pretty powerful. Take care. Be on your guard against... All covetousness, covetousness, desiring after the things you don't have, thinking that if I just purchase one more thing or if I have that or if this works out for me, then I'll be happy. And he's saying, that's, that's not going to happen. Beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And then notice the personal pronouns that are talking about this, this guy who's terribly self-absorbed. And it says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul... You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sounds like the American dream. But it's a nightmare because God said to him, Full. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. God, uh, what an amazing Bible study this has been. And God, uh, just as certain, just as your first coming was historical, evidential, factual, it was a fact, so is your second coming. And God, we want to live unwasted lives. We want to live our lives uh, and be rich towards you. And we know the best way to do that is to live for your glory and to live for your glory is to find our deepest satisfaction in you. So as we head into 2015, God, may we have this ferocious thirst for you and may it be increased uh, through the study of your word as we make your word increasingly a part of our lives, and may out of that, may we become more loving and more sensitive to your presence, and may we have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others around us. May we delight in the local church family right here at Desert Breeze. May spiritual disciplines uh, be increasingly important to us, and Lord, when we sin, Lord, bring us back, get us back on track. Lord, may we grieve over our sin and be quicker to forgive those that have hurt us, and may we yearn for the day when we will come face to face with you. We long for that day. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We love you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.